Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Scripture reading this morning comes from Colossians 1, 24 through 2, 5. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for those who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Hey, guys. How are we doing this morning? That good? Awesome. Guys, my name is Nathan, and I'm excited to get to open God's Word with you this morning as we continue uh, in this current teaching series through the New Testament book of Colossians. And um, over the last several weeks, we've kind of tackled most of the first chapter. We've learned that we call this a book. In reality, it's a letter. And it's a letter that was written by this guy named Paul about 2,000 years ago to a group of people that were mostly strangers to him. He's writing this letter to a, a, a new church, to a young church in a, in a tiny little town that, as far as we know, he had never visited before. And yet the, the truth and the challenges in this letter, while not written to us, are certainly applicable for us. And so we recognize as we're wrestling through this text, we have a whole lot to learn from this little book. Now, one of the, one of the main themes that emerges as you read through the book of Colossians, uh, and certainly kind of the primary theme of the passage that we're uh, working on today, is the theme of Christian maturity. Christian maturity. See, Paul is urging these Christ followers in Colossae to grow up, to grow up in their faith. And we need to recognize that that's not just a call for for those believers. That's a call for us as well. We are called to be a people that live a life of deep maturity in Christ. And so it's the, really the first question that each one of us on an individual basis has to, has to wrestle with this morning is the question of, am I willing to go there? Am I willing to grow up in my faith? Am I willing to let God change me and shape me? Am I willing to let God go to work on my sin and to confront me and to refine me? to shape my character and to deepen my love for him. 
Am I willing to go there? Friends, I hope that we are. I hope that you are. And if so, uh, we've got a great passage this morning. This is going to be an excellent beginning for us in that journey. Now, there's a lot of text here. There's a lot of uh, really fascinating concepts. We're not going to be able to hit every detail, um, but I want to give you just a general overview for you that like taking notes. Here's a general overview of where we're going this morning. Paul, first of all, he's going to define for us what is Christian maturity, okay? What is Christian maturity? And then he's going to give us three examples of what that actually looks like when it's lived out. So those are kind of our two overarching questions. What is Christian maturity? And secondly, what does that look like with three practical examples. So we're going to get after it. Um, But first, let me, once again, let me just pray for us real quick. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we are very thankful uh, for your word. We're thankful for uh, this letter that Paul wrote a couple thousand years ago. And uh, we acknowledge as we come together, we're coming under your word, that it, it has authority in our lives to shape us and to speak truth. And we recognize that it's something we need in our lives and hearts. And so I pray, God, that in the same way that your Holy Spirit inspired the writing of these words thousands of years ago, God, by that same Holy Spirit, by your Holy Spirit, would you inspire our reading and our understanding of this text this morning, God, in a way that doesn't just fill us up with with fancy ideas and and interesting knowledge, but, but does the deeper work, the work that we need, the work of transforming our lives and hearts. So we invite you to do that. Uh, We need you to do that. And we ask, God, that you would use these next minutes uh, for your glory and use them for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, question number one. Let's get to it. What is Christian maturity anyway? How should we define this? How does Paul define this for us? In verse 28, Um, Paul states for us his kind of his end game purpose in this passage. He says that this is what I am toiling for, that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul is fighting for, he's writing for our maturity. In the following verse, after 28, he says, this is what I strenuously contend for with all my energy to this end, full maturity. Now, chances are are good. Uh, If you're in the room today and you are a parent um, or whatever, you don't even need to be a parent. If you work with kids on any level, maybe you're a coach or an instructor or a teacher, then you understand a little bit of Paul's posture here. You understand what he means by saying this is toilsome work, right? This is strenuous work because maturity, it doesn't just happen. I would argue that maturity isn't our, our default. Rather, it's something that is developed in us over time. It's something that we work toward. And verse 28, this word mature, um, if, you, if you wrestle back in, in the original language, the Greek text, it's this word teleos, okay? This is a fairly common word. It appears like 20-something times in the New Testament. And when it shows up, it's always translated one of two ways, okay? The, the first way it's translated is the word mature, as we have it here in, in this text, okay? Mature. Uh, the other way that it's often translated is with the word perfect, okay? Mature or perfect. Telios. Now, the problem with these translations, as, as many theologians will point out, is that neither of them really captures the meaning of teleos very well, especially as Paul is intending to use it here. And so they would look at mature and they would look at perfect and say neither of them capture it because on one hand, perfect, it's too strong of a translation, 
The concept of perfection is too ultimate. It's too absolute, right? It's, it's, for us, perfection is unattainable, at least, at least on this side of, of glory. Now, the flip side is that the word mature is too weak because the reality of the word mature is that it's a completely relative term. Mature is just a way that you compare, uh, you, you compare oneself to those around them. And so the reality is you could, be, you could be the most mature person in the room, right? If that room is full of like middle school age boys, uh, it's, it's not saying that much about you, right? You might not actually be uh, that mature. And so, so here's, here's the tension. Like if, if perfect, if neither perfect nor mature really capture the meaning, if neither of them really captures the meaning of this word teleos, then what does? One of the theologians that I was reading this week pointed out that there's a better biblical word to describe this concept, uh, but it doesn't actually come from the Greek. You have to go further back. It says it comes from biblical Hebrew, and that word is the word tamim, the word tamim, which shows up multiple times in Scripture. Most often when it does, we translate the word as blameless, blameless. And the first time that we come across this word in the entirety of scripture is all the way back in Genesis chapter six. And this word tamim is used to describe this guy, Noah. I think probably many of you are familiar with Noah. He's described as being blameless or tamim, mature. Now let me ask you a question if you know, if you know Noah's story. Was he perfect? Yeah, no. Far from it, in fact. And uh, if you read his story, you find out that like the first thing that he did after the big flood, right? The boat lands on dry land. He gets out of the boat. Pretty much the first thing he does, he gets plastered and he goes streaking, right? And then he passes out naked and drunk and his sons actually have to cover him up in order to hide his shame. That's Noah. And so is he this, this sort of bastion of, of Christian moral perfection, no, no, absolutely not. He's a flawed dude, right? He's got his issues. He's got sin like all of us. And yet he's recognized as a man who leaned into God with his whole being. He was recognized as a person with a full and wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And so there's this, this tension. We could say it this way, that Noah was not blameless in terms of being sinless, but nobody could blame him for failing to love and to listen to and to follow and to lean into God. And so this, this idea of this tamim maturity, it isn't just defined um, by our behavior. It goes deeper than that. It speaks to the very affections of our hearts. This theologian, um, his name is Doug Moo, uh, he says it this way. He says, Christian maturity is the complete and undivided way in which a person with all of one's positive and negative attributes is oriented toward God. There's a lot about this definition that I love. I think what I most appreciate about it, though, is that it it includes the negative attributes, right? So you're not just leaning into God with everything that, that's great about you, but with the negative as well. Because you see, true maturity, true maturity assumes weakness. 
but it leans in anyway. And so I guess I would, I would say it, I would say it or define it like this, that Christian maturity, it's not about perfection, okay? It's not about never making mistakes, and it's also not about your performance. It's not about being better than the gal that's sitting next to you. Rather, it's about our posture. It's about our posture. Are you living a life that leans on, that leans into, that leans toward Jesus as your focus? Like, is he, is God, is he your orientation? Is your whole being oriented toward him? Are you listening to and living for God, right? That, that's teleos, that's tamim. This is maturity. So if that's the case, right, if that's what this whole concept of Christian maturity is, then the question is, what does that look like? Practically, what does that look like? And that's the second question we're wrestling through this morning. Paul's going to give us three answers, sort of three examples, which is by no means an exhaustive list, uh, but I think it's a great start for us. But before we get to them, I want to throw out a really quick disclaimer, okay? All three of these points, these examples that Paul's going to give us are, are pretty, they're pretty practical, okay? Now, very often, um, our, our sermons, I think, are, are aimed at how we should sort of think how we should believe and how we should feel. They're sort of very maybe philosophical and, and theological. Uh, our sermons often tend to function more in the realms of our heads and our hearts, which is great. The sermon today is going to be focused a bit more on our hands, if you will, like, like what we should do. And I think that good biblical teaching ought to speak to all three of these things regularly, but I recognize as well there's, there's an inherent danger when you're taking this hands approach, when you're preaching really practical stuff. Um, and the danger is this. I don't want us to fall into the trap this morning of thinking that if we just work harder, and if we just do a little bit more, and if we just be better, then somehow we are acting our way with our good behavior into God's favor. That's not what we're saying. And so I want to state from the beginning, uh, we affirm we are saved by God's grace through Christ alone. Amen? Not by our performance, not by our actions, not by our good works. And so as, as we explore these behaviors that Paul is describing and as we begin to live into them, I want to acknowledge that that ought to be coming from a place of gratitude and worship. That ought to be coming from the place inside us that, that, that celebrates the unity we have in Christ. Not coming from a place of obligation or shame or, or a desire to earn God's love. Okay, so, so these behaviors, these descriptions, I'll say it this way, they ought to flow from our salvation, right? They do not lead to our salvation. Cool? All right, let's get to it. Uh, first observation, what does Christian maturity look like? I think it looks like a life of suffering, not just pursuing comfort. A life of suffering over comfort. Now, Paul, aside from Jesus, is probably, I think you could argue, is likely one of the most spiritually mature people to have ever lived, right? The guy wrote 
the majority of the books in our New Testament. He planted a ton of churches. He essentially pioneered uh, the Christian movement, and he was no stranger to suffering. If you read his resume, you read his story, you realize this guy was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was stripped and flogged, he was stoned, he was abused, he was starved, he struggled his entire life with chronic illness and pain until eventually he was martyred. Look at Paul, look, look at how Paul describes his own life of ministry, even just in our passage today. Verse 24, he said, I rejoice in my sufferings. Verse 29, for this I toil, to uh, verse one, I want you to know how great a struggle I have. Suffering, toil, and struggle. (laughs) And this is not just Paul. Jesus himself gave his disciples a picture of what to expect as they're following him. In Matthew 16, Jesus says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is a life of suffering. It's a life of suffering. Now, don't hear me wrong, because I'm not saying that everything always has to be awful for you, or else you're failing, right? What I am saying is that I think that the path of following Jesus in the life of Christians, there is an inevitable sense in which that is going to include suffering and, and maybe the, the word sacrifice is actually a, a helpful term. There's inevitable, an inevitable sense of suffering and sacrifice in the life of a follower of Jesus. And I think that's actually what Paul is referring to here in verse 24, right? In verse 24, he says this, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, that's a super confusing verse, right? Like when you first read it, it's really easy to understand, to misunderstand. It almost sounds like Paul is is suggesting that there was something lacking in Christ's work. Like Jesus didn't quite finish the job, right? I'd like to assure you that that's not what Paul is saying. Rather, what he's saying is that Christ's suffering, Christ's afflictions weren't finished at the cross. They will continue until his return because his body, which is us, the church, his people, is still perpetually living this life of sacrificial suffering. Paul and us are filling up these afflictions. Now, here's our problem with this whole concept of a life of of sacrifice and suffering is that I think that we tend to, our our natural inclination is to do everything in our power to seek the opposite of suffering, right? I think that we spend the majority of our time and energy and effort seeking comfort. And and I think this is especially true of us as Americans, right? I think this is uh, an an incredibly apparent cultural idol, uh, in, in the United States. And we see it all the time, right? We will do whatever we can to get comfort and more comfort. We'll go into debt happily, planning like lavish vacation escapes. Or, or if we can't do that, we will regularly escape into whatever other comforts are available, right? The, the self-medication of um, binge-watching Netflix or whatever else it may be, alcohol or junk food or, I don't know, sort of living vicariously through your favorite sports team or retail therapy or whatever it is, right? Like, here's the issue. 
When comfort is our drive, when that is our primary motivation, we are not mature Christians. We are not mature Christians. Now, once again, I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not dismissing all comfort as a bad thing. And I'm not saying that all comfort is immature, right? Jesus even will, will describe the Holy Spirit as, do you know what? As the comforter, right? Jesus describes the Spirit as our comforter. And so I'm not saying that comfort itself is the issue. Our issue is when we place our pursuit of comfort over and above the pursuit of Christ and his kingdom. And so rather than, than, than seeking to draw our comfort from our unity with Christ, instead we just look to find it in all of these inferior places, places that are never going to actually satisfy Now, I think it's really interesting, and I think it's no accident, um, that Paul brings our attention uh, to another church, not just the, the church in Colossae here. Um, he brings our attention to another church uh, that suffered from this exact same issue that plagues us, right? This comfort idol, okay? So in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul gives a shout out to this church in Laodicea. We find out one more time in scripture, we hear about this church in Laodicea, and that is in the book of Revelation. So the very end of the Bible, Jesus speaks to this church in Laodicea, and he's got some pretty harsh things to say. This is what he says. I know your deeds, and that you are neither cold nor hot. And I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. <laughs> Ouch, right? Those are some harsh words. So what was their problem? What was their problem? And I think it's this. I think they got really comfortable. <laughs> He's saying it here. He said they, these was a people with tremendous, with great stability and great success and great wealth. These were people for whom life was pretty darn good, right? We all get that on some level, bend life, right? It's pretty darn good. But the reality was that in order for them to maintain that standard of living, in order for them to maintain that level of comfort and stability, they had to keep Jesus at an arm's length. Right? They didn't want to let him get, get too close. They didn't want to get too passionate, not too hot, as Jesus said here. But the flip side is they also didn't want him to get too far away. Right? Not, not too cold. And so they kept him right where they wanted him, right in this strategic spot where they can sort of still claim him, but they don't really have to sacrifice anything. They certainly don't have to carry a cross. It's not going to cost them too much. They sought comfort first. And, and it sure seems like they didn't want anything to do with this picture of suffering. And so Jesus says he, he spits them out of his mouth. Right? That's a pretty tame translation, actually. Most of our other English translations say that he vomits them out of his mouth, which is gross, right? Um, it's gross, but more than that, more than being kind of icky, I think it's incredibly unsettling 
And if I'm honest, it freaks me out a little bit. I think it's scary. Um, and and I, think, I think it's a warning shot across the bow of maybe what is much of American Christianity. Are we seeking comfort or are we seeking Christ? Because it seems to me like we can't do both. Let's keep going. Second observation, what does Christian maturity look like? It's a life of serving, not consumerism. Um, in verse 25, Paul again describes his life in ministry with the church, and he uses the word servant to define himself, which I find super interesting. He says, uh, I have become its servant by the commission of God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. Now, it's interesting to me that he chooses to use the term servant here, right? Not leader, I'm not your great leader. He doesn't even use the term pastor or, or great and powerful teacher or even the almighty Paul, right? Um, but servant. You know what it's like? It's almost like he's not clinging to power and authority. But instead, it's almost like he's modeling his life after Jesus, who, according to Philippians and Matthew's gospel, Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage, but rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And Jesus, who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, first Jesus and then Paul both model a life of Christian maturity as one of humble serving. And if, if it's true that Christ is now in us, the hope of glory, as this text says, if Christ is in us, the hope of glory, then I believe we are called to the same thing, right? to be servants. And so in the same way that Paul is this faithful servant and a faithful minister of the gospel, I want you to hear this today, you are also called to be a faithful servant and minister of the gospel, okay? You are called to ministry, <laughs> period. Paul uh, makes sure that, that we are understanding here that this work, this, this mission, this, this, this servanthood and ministry, it isn't just for him, right? This is something that we all are called to engage and to participate in. In verse 28, he says, him we proclaim. It's Jesus is whom we are proclaiming, not me, not just me, but, but we. We are all called to be ministers of this gospel, now, I don't mean that uh, you need to quit your job and you all need to go to seminary and you all need to become foreign missionaries or, or pastors or whatever. Though maybe some of you, maybe some of you should. Maybe that is what God's calling you to do. I don't know. Um, but rather what I mean is that we are called to live as servant ministers in our everyday lives. 
to live that in our workplaces and to live it with our families and in our neighborhoods, right? That we are called to be about the stuff that Paul and Jesus was about, about making disciples and about partnering with Jesus in the reconciliation of all things. Here's a problem as I see it. I think, I think that many, many of us and many of the Christians just in the church today in general um, don't actually want to live out the ministry. We'd rather just receive the ministry. Do you know what I mean by that? We don't really want to live it out. We, we would just rather... We would just rather receive it. And, and for some of us, that comes from a place of insecurity. Some of you in the room likely feel like you're inadequately prepared to engage in a life of ministry. And I think that that's understanding on some level because I think a lot of us grew up in churches where that was never asked of us. We grew up in churches that just wanted us to simply sit back and to be entertained, right? And of course, tithe. <laughs> um, now, for others of us, if we're really honest, um, that may be all we want. That's actually all we want out of our church experience. We don't actually want to serve and minister. We just want to tithe. Like, we just want to uh, write checks and pay uh, the professionals to do it for us. It's a little bit weird or ironic coming from me as like a paid pastor that's a part of this church. And so, like, in some sense, thank you guys. Uh, but also, hear me, I don't just want to do this for you. I want to do it with you. I want to do this with you. Right? We are in this together. You are no less called to the work of the ministry than I am. There's a sense in which we don't want to serve, we want to consume. Right? Hear me, I don't think that that's a sign of maturity. I think it's the opposite. I don't think that that's real Christianity. I think it's, it's consumerism. And I'll let you keep wrestling with that. So let's jump to my final observation, point three. What does Christian maturity look like? This one sounds funny. I'm going to explain it. It's a life of soldiering, not complacency. Soldiering not complacency. Let's look again at the, the last verse in our passage today. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Now there's two significant words or terms here, two significant descriptions. And the first is this word disciplined and the second is the word firm. Okay. Now if we go back to the Greek, once again, Paul uses the Greek words taxis and stereoma. Okay? which are, are very interesting words because as they appear both in the Bible but also in ancient uh, Greek manuscripts, they are almost always, almost 100% of the time, these two terms are used in military contexts. Okay? It's military language. These are terms most often used to describe soldiers who are disciplined and trained and strong and prepared. Right? And this is actually a very common analogy that Paul uses in his writings as well. So in, in 2 Timothy, he says this, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. What's the point here? Paul is calling these believers to train 
and to prepare with discipline and be firm, train and prepare for this Christian life like soldiers prepare for battle. <laughs> That's pretty serious work, isn't it? It's pretty serious work. I'm, I'm curious, just show of hands if, if you're willing. Do we have any either active military person or any military veterans in the house today? There's a few, a few, yeah, half a dozen or so. Yeah, that's great, thank you guys. Just quick question for, for you guys that served. How fun was boot camp? <laughs> Probably not, right? It's a, sort of a fun little fact about me. Uh, I'm actually the first male member of my family going back now multiple generations. And when I say my family, I'm including like brothers-in-laws and cousins and my dad and my uncle, grandparents, whatever. The first male member of my family to have neither served in the military nor in law enforcement. And so I'm the weird one. Like I'm the liberal hippie black sheep rebel that became a Baptist pastor, <laughs> uh, which they still don't know what to do with. Um, Discipline means hard work. And it's, it's the opposite of complacency. Like complacency says, eh, I'm okay. Right? I don't need to work. I don't need to change. Discipline means work. It means structure. It means faithfulness. And so let me ask the question, is there any discipline in your personal practice of faith? Is there any fight in you? Like, is there, any, is there any fight to grow and to learn and to become more like Jesus? Is there any fight in you? Where is it? Where does it show up? Or maybe a better question, when is it? When does it show up? If you guys didn't get a chance to hear Evan's sermon from last week, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it on the website. Um, it was meaningful and impactful and powerful and, and beautiful. And he ended his sermon with sort of his application for us. He was wrestling with this question about how do we grow in our faith? How do we practice the presence of Christ, our unity with Christ? And his challenge was really simple. His challenge was start with five minutes a day. Five, can you give five minutes a day this week to prayer? Five minutes to read your Bible. Um, here's the truth. For many of us, five minutes may not feel like much. Now, you could commit hours and it still may not feel like much. But the reality is that these are the activities that grow us the activities that mature us. Brian Zond, uh, he talks about spiritual disciplines um, and, and his analogy is uh, the movie The Karate Kid, right? Uh, and, and so if, if you guys aren't familiar, Mr. Miyagi, um, he has Daniel-san uh, wax the car, right? And then, and then paint the fence, and then sand the deck. And he spends weeks doing these really mundane tasks and it feels like nothing is going on. And he gets really frustrated and he confronts Miyagi. He's like, I'm not getting anything out of this. You're wasting my time. But in reality, what's happening? He's learning karate. <laughs> He's learning karate. And I think that 
I think it's the same with our spiritual disciplines. I think that as we spend time in our Bible, I think that as we, as we pray, as we, as we come forward on Sunday mornings and, and we participate in the, in the sacraments, right, communion, we are growing in maturity. We are in those moments practicing the presence of Christ. We may not realize it, but the Spirit is working on us. It's preparing us for battle, for the life that we're called to for soldiering. And finally, there's, there's one more aspect of this concept of soldiering that I just want to hit on really quick. Um, Paul mentions it in, in verse 4. He says, uh, and it looks like this, it looks like guarding our hearts and minds from falsehood. Okay, And so Paul has been urging these believers again and again throughout the letter so far, stay focused on Jesus. Keep your eyes and hearts focused on the gospel. Why? In verse 4, he says, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. I appreciate that Paul very respectfully here, very respectfully acknowledges that there are those who oppose Christianity, there are enemies of the faith, and yet he doesn't demean them, at least here, right? He doesn't belittle them or attack them. He says, actually, a lot of them are pretty smart. They have, they have plausible arguments. They have fine-sounding arguments. The, the question for us is, what's our best option for standing firm? What's our best option for standing firm against falsehoods? It's not to attack them. Rather, it's to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and his gospel. The best analogy I've ever heard to describe what this looks like um, seems a little goofy, but it's actually that of the Secret Service, right? So uh, Andrew Johnson um, was the president in 1865, also a fun fact, first ever president to be impeached. Um, in 1865, he commissioned the Secret Service, and back then, the Secret Service had nothing to do with, like, the president's security detail. They were uh, part of the Department of Treasury, and their job was to investigate and prevent counterfeiting of U.S. currency, okay? That was their job. And they became the best counterfeit detectives in the world. And I remember reading an article once about how they trained for their job. Uh, and do, do you know how they did it? Do you know how they studied? You know what they didn't do? They didn't research fake bills. They, don't, they, they didn't scrupulously study the counterfeits, the counterfeits. Instead, they focused solely on the real thing. They'd take a $20 bill and they would study it and they would pour over it, every single detail, until it was so emblazoned in their minds that the differences in counterfeits were obvious when they came across them. I think it's a powerful picture of what life should be like for us. That we should look to, that we should study, that we should memorize and contemplate and meditate upon Jesus and his word. That we should know his gospel so thoroughly that when erroneous teachings, false teachings arrive, we know where and how they fail to measure up to God's truth because we are so intimately aware of it, right? The scriptures, friends, they are 
this feels weird to say, but there are, there are truly minted dollar bill, right? They're the real deal. Look to them with discipline. Stand firm in the faith. And uh, yeah, there you have it. We are called to Christian maturity, which is, at its core, it's a posture, it's an orientation of our whole being that leans toward God, and at times that looks like a life of of suffering or sacrifice. Certainly it looks like a life of serving and ministry, and then finally a life of of soldiering and discipline. It's a life that that, that is opposed to the ways of of consumerism and the the obsessive pursuit of comfort and, and complacency. But one last time, lest we begin thinking that all we need to do now is just try harder and, and, and be better and apply ourselves more, uh, I want to end by remembering the one that all of this began with, right? Jesus. Because you see, at the end of the day, Jesus is true maturity is the one that oriented his whole entire life to the Father. And more than that, Jesus is the true servant coming, as we said before, not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus is the truly innocent sufferer, the one who suffered our penalty for sin so that we might have forgiveness and life. And Jesus is the truest soldier, if we want to think of it that way, the one who brought down the spiritual forces of darkness and sin and death when he rose Victorious from the grave, friends, this is our Jesus. And what I love about Jesus is he's not just our paradigm for Christian maturity. More than that, he's our savior. Which means he is the one who covers our failures to do all of this well. The one who covers our immaturity. The one who wraps us up in gracious loving arms. So I want to leave you with one final thought. And that is this, that this whole concept of maturity, that growth into maturity, it assumes that we're starting at a place of immaturity. It assumes our weakness. We could say it this way. It assumes that we're all like kids, right? That we're all like kids. And, um, Man, yeah, I, I was remembering this this week uh, when all my kids were learning to ride their bikes, you know? And um, man, when they're trying and they fell off their bikes, I didn't shame them for failing, right? Instead, I, I, I applauded them for their effort and I helped them up. I was reminded uh, on, on Facebook this week, I uh, came across a, a, a video that we had recorded, and, and it was a video of my son, and it was the very first time in his life that he ever successfully rode his bike without training wheels. And, uh, and it, was, it was fun to watch. It's kind of hilarious because a tiny little bike, he was a little kid, and he was wearing a giant motorcycle helmet, so he looked like a bobblehead. Um, he just looked ridiculous. Um, but he starts riding for the first time, and, and I think Carrie was filming, and you can hear her and I both just screaming in the background, like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. You're doing it. He's tearing up the street. And he turns around, and he comes back, and, uh, you know, big, goofy smile on his face. Uh, and I asked him, I was like, how old are you? 
how old are you? And he's saying, I'm three, I'm three. And he's riding his bike and it's adorable. And then his, his younger sister, Adelaide, um, comes waddling on uh, to like the edge of the picture. And, and she was on one of those strider bikes, you know, without the pedals, just sort of a balance bike and she's walking it. And she's saying, I'm two, I'm two. And, uh, and it was adorable. And man, what hit me is what a cool picture that is of us as the church. In that, some are further along in the journey. (laughs) We have some older brothers in the faith that are getting it and running ahead of us, and then then others of us are are a bit behind in the journey, like maybe like, like the younger sister who can't even ride the bike yet, and we're trying to learn, but we're maturing together in this process, and all of us have this loving father who's waiting to scoop us up when we fall and love us through it. I think maturity is an invitation. It's a process. Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to go there? You know, we're going to take some time now and create some opportunities for us to do that together. And um, and so as a first step of maturity, you know what? You can start by just coming to the communion table this morning, right? (laughs) Wax on. Wax off. And we can continue in this process of maturing together as we engage in a time of prayer and worship. And so our worship band, uh, they're going to come out. And um, Paul, not Bible Paul, but this Paul, Paul Hines, uh, and crew, is, they're going to lead us in some fence painting <laughs> and some, some deck sanding. And we have this opportunity to grow and to mature and to engage together. And so, um, would you stand with me, if you're able? I'll pray for us, and we'll keep going. Yeah, Heavenly Father, um, I'm extremely grateful this morning for your unending love and grace, and for your abundant patience with us, uh, man, so often we are just like children, sort of floundering in our immaturity and not sure which way's up. And, um, and you've called us to more, but you haven't just left us on our own to figure that out. And, and so I'm thankful for the gift of your spirit. Um, God, we also want to take seriously your call and commands this morning to grow up in Christ. God, I pray that we would begin to live into, to a greater extent, um, these rhythms of service and, and, and sacrifice and, and soldiering, recognizing that seasons of suffering are seasons to grow and mature in you. And God, all along the way, uh, would you remind us that we're not alone? We've got each other and we've got you and we're thankful, God, for your love. We're thankful for your love that would, that would cause you to send your son to live and to die and to rise and to ascend that we might be made whole. You gave your son away that we might be brought in 
to your family as your sons and daughters, your gospel truth is not lost on us. God, would you sink it deeper into our hearts this morning as you lead us on this journey of maturity. Thank you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.